0: Chapter Three of A Negro Explorer at the North Pole by Matthew A. Henson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Three. At Etta, we take on the final load of coal from the Eric and the other supplies she has for us, and from now on, it will be farewell to all the world. We will be alone with our company, and our efforts will be towards the north and our evasive goal. At Etta, on going ashore we were met by the most hopelessly dirty, unkempt, filth-littered human being any of us had ever seen, or could ever have imagined. A white man, with long matted hair and beard, who could speak very little English, and that, only between cries, whimperings, and whines, and whose legs were swollen out of all shape from the scurvy he was rudolph frank and had been left here the year before by dr f a cook an old acquaintance of mine who had been a member of other expeditions of the commander's frank was in a bad way and the burden of his wail was take me away from this i have permission see here is dr cook's letter and he showed a letter from dr cook authorizing him to leave if opportunity offered dr goodsell looked him over and pronounced him unfit to remain in the arctic any longer than it would take a ship to get him out and the commander had him kindly treated cleaned medicated and placed aboard the eric the poor fellow's spirits commenced to rise immediately and there is good chance of his recovery and safe return home we learned that dr cook with two eskimo boys Is over on the grantland side and in probably desperate circumstances if he is still alive the commander has issued orders in writing to murphy and billy pritchard to be on the lookout for him and give him all the help he may need and has also instructed the eskimos to keep careful watch for any traces of him while on their hunting trips there is a cache of dr cook's provisions here which Frank turned over to the commander, and Mr. Whitney has agreed to help Murphy and Billy to guard it. Mr. Harry Whitney is one of the party of men who came here on the Eric to hunt in this region, and he has decided to stay here at Etta for the winter and wait for a ship to take him out next summer. The other two members of the hunting party, Mr. Larned and Mr. Norton, returned on the Eric, If Mr. Whitney had asked me my advice, I would not have suggested that he remain, because, though he had a fine equipment, there will not be much sport in his experience, and there will be a great deal of roughness. He will have to become like the Eskimos, and they will be practically his only companions. However, Mr. Whitney has had a talk with the commander in the cabin of the Roosevelt, and the commander has given his consent and best wishes. Mr. Whitney's supplies have been unloaded, and some additions from the Eric made, and there is no reason to fear for his safety. August eighth, nineteen 1908. My 42nd birthday. I have not mentioned it to anyone, and there's only one other besides myself who knows that to-day I am twice three times seven years of age. Seventeen years ago to-day, Commander Peary, hobbling about on his crutches, with his right leg in a sling, insisted on giving me a birthday party i was twenty-five years old then and on the threshold of my arctic experience never before in my life had the anniversary of my birth been celebrated and to have a party given in my honor touched me deeply mrs peary was a member of the expedition then and i supposed that it was due to her that the occasion was made a memorable one for me last year i was aboard the roosevelt in the shadow of the statue of liberty in new york bay and was treated to a pleasant surprise by my wife. Commander Peary gave me explicit instructions to get Nipsungwa and Maya ashore as quickly as the Creator would let them, but to be sure that their seven curs were kept aboard, these two huskies having exalted ideas as to their rights and privileges. Ejinguwa, or Karko, as we knew him, and Kudlutina and his family were to come aboard. Acting under orders, I obeyed, but it was not a pleasant task. I have known men who needed dogs less to pay a great deal more for one pup than was paid to nipson for his pack of seven. The dogs are a valuable asset to this people, and these two men were dependent on their little teams to a greater extent than on the plates and cups of tin which they received in exchange for them. August 8 AND 9, 1908 having been trading with the natives without any trouble they will give anything i want for anything that i have that they want it's a shame to take the money or as money is unknown up here and has no value i should say that i should be ashamed to take such an advantage of them but if i should stop to consider the freight rates to this part of the world no doubt a hatchet or a knife is worth just what it can be traded in for The ship has been rapidly littering up until it is now in a most perfect state of dirtiness, and in order to get the supplies from the eric, coal, etc., the movable articles, dogs, Eskimos, etc., will have to be shifted, and yours truly is helping. The dogs have been landed on a small island in the bay, where they are safe and cannot run away, and they can have a glorious time fighting and getting acquainted with each other. Some of the Eskimos' goods are ashore some aboard the Eric, and the rest forward on the roof of the deck-house, while the Roosevelt is getting her coal aboard. The loading of the meat and coal has been done by the crews of the ships, assisted and hampered by some of the Eskimos, and I have been walrus-hunting, and taxidermizing, that is, I have skinned a pair of walrus so that they can be stuffed and mounted. This job has been very carefully, and I think successfully, done, and the skins have been towed ashore. The hearts, livers, and kidneys have been brought aboard, and the meat is to be loaded tomorrow. Two boatloads of bones have been rowed over to Dog Island for dog food. Coaling and stowing of whale meat aboard the Roosevelt was finished at noon, August 15th, and all day Sunday, August 16th. All hands were at the job transferring to the Eric the boxes of provisions that were to be left at the cache at Etah. Boson Murphy and Billy Pritchard, the cabin-boy, are to stay as guard until the return of the Roosevelt next summer. A blinding storm of wind and snow prevented the Roosevelt from starting until about 2.30 p.m., when, with all the dogs a-howling, the whistle tooting, and the crew and members cheering, we steamed out of the harbor into Smith Sound, and a thick fog which compelled half-speed past Littleton Island and into heavy pack-ice. Captain Bartlett was navigating the ship, and his eagle eye found a lane of open water from Cape Sabine to Baish Peninsula, and open water from Ellesmere Land, halfway across Buchanan Bay. But this lead closed on him, and the Roosevelt had to stop. Late in the evening the ice started to move and grind alongside of the ship, but did no damage except scaring the Eskimos. Daylight still kept up, and we went to sleep with our boots on. From Etta to Cape Sheridan, which was to be our last point north in the ship, consumed twenty-one days of the hardest kind of work imaginable for a ship, actually fighting for every foot of the way against the almost impassable ice. For another ship it would have been impassable, but the Roosevelt was built for this kind of work, and her worth and ability had been proven on the voyage of 1905. The constant jolting, bumping, and jarring against the ice-packs, forwards and backwards, the sudden stops and starts, and the frequent storms, made work and comfort aboard ship all but impossible. Had it been possible to be ashore at some point of vantage, to witness the struggles of our little ship against her giant adversaries, would have been an impressive sight. I will not dwell on the trying hours and days of her successful battle, the six days of watching and waiting for a chance to get out of our dangerous predicament in Lincoln Bay the rounding of the different capes en route or the horrible jams in lady franklin bay the good ship kept at the fight and won by sheer bulldogged dogged tenacity and pluck life aboard her during those twenty-one days was not one sweet song but we did not suffer unusually and a great deal of necessary work was done on our equipments The Eskimo women sewed diligently on the fur clothing we were to wear during the coming winter, and I worked on the sledges that were to be used. Provisions were packed in compact shape, and every one was busy. Two caches of provisions were made ashore in the event of an overland retreat, and the small boats were fully provisioned as a precaution against the loss of the ship. We did not dwell on the thought of losing it, but we took no chances. Meeting with continual rebuffs, but persistently forging ahead and gaining deliberately day by day, the Roosevelt pushed steadily northward through the ice encumbered waters of Kane Basin, Kennedy and Robeson channels, and around the northeast corner of Grant Land to the shelter of Cape Sheridan, which was reached early in the afternoon of September fifth, nineteen o eight. End of chapter three.